Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you, as always. And on a previous episode of this podcast, we discussed a game of tennis that the two of us played, and I joked that I had hurt my Achilles, and yeah. uh, I was in I was in pain. I was in pain at that point, but not quite as much pain as I am at the moment. Because uh, I played a game of tennis yesterday, several games of tennis, against co-host Brennan Mortensen, and uh, broke both of my wrists. They're both in soft casts, Velcro Velcro casts at the moment. Uh, But I think the important thing, and I got to look directly into the camera for this, (laughs) is to remember, is that yesterday I continued to play. I took a little water break. Continued to play after yeah. I was falling backwards. I braced myself. I could tell something was wrong. And I said, Brendan, I think I broke my wrist. <laughs> I thought it was only one at the time. And Brendan said, can you move your wrist? And I said, yeah. And he said, then you didn't break your wrist. With utmost certainty. With my medical degree that I definitely have. I really wish you were in the room when the doctor told me, yeah, you broke them both. Not just the one. And furthermore... I continued to play and almost beat you almost, in the final Almost game. is a very strong 15 word. 15 to 12, I believe, was the final score 12? of the final game. I had at least 11. Eh. With, I, a broken, with two broken wrists. Listen, Brandon. we have agreed that you can make the score as close as you want because I will concede that you did continue to play with... Two broken wrists. <laughs> I've got to stop laughing. You, yeah. I can't. Yeah, you, you, I'm trying. You just can't laugh your way through four to six weeks. I'll tell you that yeah. much. Um, because that is the timetable for my recovery. So uh, we're powering through. We're, we're trying. Pa- the show goes yeah. on and the podcast goes on and where you have a lot to discuss. We do. Non-wrist related discussions to be had on yeah. today's Mass and All Access podcast. In a little bit, we're going to talk about... Uh, how the Orioles got here, how the individual members of this Orioles team were assembled in Baltimore. I think because we often forget how all of the, you know, we were watching game and you're like, wait, how did they get him? And how did they get him? And also during the team's hot start and granted they have cooled. I think it is the most common question that an Orioles fan got through the first month of the season was from a non Orioles fan friend was how did the, this guy get here? Who is this guy? And where did he come from? So we're going to talk about that in a bit. But, Brendan, we should first start with the breaking news of the day. As of the time of this recording, it has not been confirmed by the team. But MassInSports.com's Rockabaco broke the news that Ryan Malcastle, the Orioles' number five prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, will be joining the team tonight. Your thoughts? It's about time. Those are my thoughts, and I think that's the thoughts of most Orioles fans at the moment. I mean, pretty much every time... Every time there was an out made by an Oriole, I think everybody in the world was, well, Ryan Mountcastle would have hit a home run or something like that because Ryan Mountcastle has a spectacular bat. He is inserted into the team at a point where they really need an offensive spark. I am excited 
I think Orioles fans in general should be excited. He's the number five prospect on the Orioles' top 30. And the question with Mountcastle always was, is the glove ready? The bat has never been a question. And I think the answer that we got is that even if the glove isn't ready, I don't think it really matters. Yeah, at at this point, I totally agree because a lot of people were bringing up the fact that Dwight Smith Jr. um, continues to get playing time in left field. And he is just not, at this point in his career, he is not a good defender. We have seen over the past, it it has been glaring over the past week, really. Uh, He has made some curious decisions on some fly balls. He's let some fly balls drop that really, uh, that he's either lost in the lights or whatever it was. Um, And the arm has really never been there. Um, and he's, you know, there have been times where they teams have tested his arm and just he, his throws have not been close. So even if Ryan Mountcastle comes to this team and, and they stick him in left field, maybe not every night, but, every, every, you know, most nights, I think the team realized and Brandon Hyde realized that he's going to be at least as good as the guy who would be who is there now defensively in Dwight Smith Jr. Right. And obviously he has a much higher offensive ceiling. At this point, um, we should talk about where what we kind of expect from him to start because the guy was superb last year. He's he's really never hit below like 287 in any individual year in the minor leagues. He is uh, the Orioles' number five prospect, I believe, according to MLB Pipeline. He hit you know International League MVP last year, 25 homers, 80 something RBIs, hit over 310. What can we expect from Ryan Mountcastle on August 21st, inserted, if he is, inserted into the starting lineup? Well, the bat has been Major League ready for a while, Yeah, I think. I mean, the dude has absolutely mashed at every single level of the minor leagues. He was the Brooks Robinson Minor League Player of the Year for the Orioles. And last year in AAA, he hit 312, 25 home runs, 83 RBIs, 35 doubles, and 162 hits in 127 games. The only real concern that you have with Ryan Mountcastle at the plate is that last year his walk rate went way down and his strikeout numbers went way up. He had 130 strikeouts compared to just 24 walks in 127 games. Now for context, Carlos Santana, the first baseman for the Indians, leads the majors right now in walks with 27 in 25 games. So Mountcastle does not walk a lot. He's got to work on his plate discipline a little bit. And I think he's going to have his struggles with the bat, but there won't be a lot of them. I think, I don't know if he's going to hit 300. I think he'll probably hit somewhere 270, 280. If I had to guess right now, that's what I would be expecting for this season. I think that's a lofty expectation for a minor league bat coming up, but I think his bat has been so consistently good that he hasn't given me any reason to think otherwise. Yeah, and you mentioned the walk-to-strikeout rate, and that was something that the organization mentioned at the end of last year. Michael Elias said, you know, the reason that we didn't make Ryan Mountcastle's September call-up is we have these little things. But I think Orioles fans came back with, and they were right to think this, that, that is a legitimate right, but it's not enough to keep a guy in the minor leagues who is performing at that level. It, it, you know, it, is, it is a legitimate right, but it is still not enough um, to be a major concern and to keep a guy from at least getting his feet wet in the big leagues. Well, a legitimate gripe, but in 2020, you've seen it over the past few years. The strikeout numbers just 
don't matter as much as they used to. Yeah. If you have a guy who is hitting for average and hitting a lot of home runs, you don't really care if he strikes out a lot. Yeah. Because he's either going to come to the plate and he's going to hit a home run or a double or get some kind of extra base hit, or he's going to strike out. And you'll take that. The strikeouts are not as much of a deterrent as they used to be. And, and I think that's just who he has been, is an aggressive hitter. And I think, honestly, you're probably going to see higher-level prospects be more aggressive, period. You know, the, I think a lot of the guys that have high walk rates in the minor leagues are guys, typically, I'm making a huge generalization here, but typically guys that are looking to crack the big leagues because they have not quite made it in other areas. You know, so they're saying, all right, well, if I get my walk rate up, I can show the organization that I have a higher on-base percentage, and maybe that'll be my call-up. Whereas Ryan Mackcastle is a 23-year-old just looking to mash. And, you know, at, at that point, he is just looking to make Michael Elias notice his numbers. So I, I, I do think it is, a, again, a legitimate gripe, but I think that it has not been enough to keep him down. But at this point, yeah, I mean, I think he is... He is legitimately ready. We don't know exactly because we can't even go to the alternate site in Bowie. We don't know exactly how he's been spending his time. What we have heard from the organization is that he has been used and left for the most part. He last year tried out first base, of course, was drafted as a shortstop third baseman. Um, and Mike and Brandon Hyde said, we don't want to bring anybody up as a DH. So with this current lineup, I would think he fits most likely, especially considering how Dwight Smith Jr. has struggled. You just got to stick him in left, right? I would assume that you have to stick him in left, but I also wouldn't be surprised at all if he bounces around a decent amount. I know you don't want to bring somebody up as a DH, and right now Renato Nunez is hitting pretty well. But if the guy is not a fantastic fielder and you need his bat in the lineup, you put him at DH. I mean, if he's one of the better hitters in the lineup, you're going to put him in the lineup somehow. I wouldn't be surprised if he got a decent amount of games at DH, some at first base. I also wouldn't be surprised by to give Chris Davis some off days. But I think a majority of his time is going to be in left field because, like you said, not to keep harping on Dwight Smith Jr., but the bat hasn't really been there for Dwight Smith, hitting just 220, and the fielding is certainly not there yeah so if he's not at least giving you a decent bat in the lineup he's he's not really worth keeping in the lineup and if Ryan Mountcastle is going to come up and hit really well even if he gives you a below average left field yeah that's kind of what you're getting right now right so it's an improvement yeah and from a macro perspective I know organizations shouldn't always make decisions based on what the fans think But fans have been clamoring this for a while because they have seen the kind of numbers that this guy's been putting up, and it just excites the fan base. You know, if if there were fans allowed in the stands, my guess is ticket sales would be through the roof for tonight's game because fans are are so excited to see these top minor leaguers come up through the system. We saw it last September with Austin Hayes, and I think there's even more hype surrounding Ryan Mountcastle. He's a top-five prospect. Frankly, he was the number one prospect just a, uh, a year and a half ago, just about. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that this orga- Orioles organization is a whole lot deeper uh, in terms of top prospects because Adley Rutschman got drafted. He got put up there. Heston Kerstad got drafted. He got put up ahead, Mal- ahead of Mountcastle. So, you know, he, he has dropped in the prospect rankings through no fault of his own. 
he has dropped through the prospect ranking simply because there are there has been such an influx of talent through the system. So make no mistake, this guy is still the same guy that was the number one or number two prospect in the Orioles system two years ago. Absolutely. And if you're an Orioles fan, get excited. Yeah. I mean, this is not your typical a team's number five prospect. Like you said, Ryan Mountcastle played amazingly in the minors and just moved down by the pure fact that the Orioles drafted higher guys. Yeah. I mean, he was a back end of the first round pick Mountcastle was in 2015. So you've just got other guys who are exciting prospects. But if you're this excited for the number five overall prospect in the Orioles system, just wait until you get the number one, number two, number three guys. Yeah, yeah. And and this is, we talked about last podcast, the kind of waves of of, of prospects coming yep. through. This is, he is the first wave. So I think he is the centerpiece of this first wave of prospects. And other guys I would consider in that category, Austin Hayes was like the first guy of this first wave. Uh, you know, I think there are guys like Michael Bauman, maybe some of the guys that we saw in Bowie last year, some of the pitchers in terms of, you know, Zach Lowther, um, you Dean know, Al- Alexander Wells, Dean Kramer. Uh, Keegan Aiken, who made his major league debut. These, this is the first wave, but the second wave is supposed to have an even higher ceiling. But that being said, I do think he is the crown jewel of this first wave, so to speak. Um, and he is a, a hugely exciting prospect. And, you know, I, I'm sure Orioles fans will have high expectations for him. It's, he's only going to get less than 40 games here. So who knows? He might have a bad month, and, you know, that screws up his whole rookie, so to speak, season. So, you know, I, I don't want to put too much pressure on the guy, but also it is okay to get excited and to get pumped about this guy making his big league debut. And again, I wouldn't expect him to hit 300. I, right. don't, I don't know if he's going hit to hit the ground running that fast, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's hitting somewhere in the 270, 280 range because his bat is just that good. Right, and the, the, the power, I mean, and this Orioles team hit the ground running offensively on a, they were clicking on all cylinders through the first three weeks of the season, and this last week they have hit a speed bump. Imagine adding a guy that has the kind of power that he has and the, the ability to hit for contact that he has into the, I don't know where they'll stick him in the lineup, maybe the 5-6 hole to start, or, or they put him near the top, the 2-3 hole. Like That well, just dramatically changes your lineup, and especially with Jose Iglesias, who was tearing the cover off the ball, with him being injured, that raises the level of your lineup significantly. Well, if everybody is healthy, right now Austin Hayes and Jose Iglesias are not in the lineup, I think the two, three, four, five guys are going to be some combination of Iglesias, Santander, and then two of the three of Severino, Mountcastle, Nunez. Yeah. If I had to guess. If you're putting nine out there for a completely healthy lineup, I would guess that it goes Austin Hayes, Anthony Santander, Pedro Severino, Renato Nunez, Ryan Mountcastle, Rio Ruiz, Jose Iglesias, Hanser Alberto, Chris Davis. Am I crazy for thinking that's a pretty good lineup? That's a pretty good lineup. I, like, <laughs> and, uh, not, not, uh, that's probably what, the third or, I don't know how the Red Sox, fourth best, third best lineup in the AL East, would you say? Probably, yeah. I mean, behind the Yankees and the Rays? I mean, the Red Sox are in the basement because they can't pitch. They can't pitch. So, their yeah, their lineup is still Rafael Devers solid. And, yeah. Verdugo has been playing well. Devers has regressed this year, okay. but they've still they're still a dangerous so I lineup. On there, it's a, it's, it's an okay lineup. It's a it's good lineup, lineup, which is crazy to say, especially when your two hitter Anthony Santander is playing like an MVP. Yeah, I mean, and it is a shame right now that Austin Hayes is not injured. 
uh, is injured. It is a shame that we're not going to get to see him play, uh, play because just the sight of, from left to right, Ryan Mountcastle, Austin Hayes, and Anthony Santander, three guys that have been outstanding um, would, and, and just a glimpse of the future. I mean, that would be a, a very exciting one, two, three outfield. And that is the future. I think that's the future outfield. I mean, it's it, tough to insert t- Heston Kerstad in yeah, somewhere I mean, in a few years. Heston Kerstad is still, I think, in the eyes of the organization. Who knows? He hasn't even reported to the alternate site. The the long term right fielder, right? But and you still have used Neil Diaz in the minors. But at least you have. I mean, that is that is could be the strength of your team right there. Absolutely, uh, could be. And could even be. if you want to DH Mount Castle, you could move Kerstad to left. You could put Yusniel Diaz in left. Yeah, the possibilities are endless. They are. It is. Brandon Hyde is going to have fun. He's yeah. going to enjoy the fact that he gets to put this guy in the lineup every day. And again, I, you know, I don't want to put undue expectations on this guy, but it is just going to be a reason to tune in for games, even more than the the other reason that uh, you know they then uh, they have been playing fairly well. They're twelve and thirteen at this point. But by the way, it has been made official now live on the podcast that Ryan Mountcastle we're breaking news here. we are breaking news has been uh has joined the team been recalled from the alternate site and the corresponding move is that Chris Davis has hit the 10-day IL with left knee patellar tendonitis so that is the corresponding move um for Ryan Mountcastle which that's very interesting that's interesting because that opens up a first base spot we've seen Renato Nunez man first base at times when Chris Davis has been taken out of the lineup. Frankly, he has not been a plus defender at all at no. first base. He's not a natural first baseman. And, and especially taking over for Chris Davis at that spot, who you can say all you want about Chris Davis at the plate and his struggles there, but you put Chris Davis at first base, and he is going to be very good defensively. Yeah. I mean... But but that's big. That's big. And, I mean, I just can't wait to hear what Brandon Hyde has to say later today in terms of their plan for Ryan Mountcastle. I still... I mean... I still think he goes. I still in think left he field. goes in left field. I do, I do, and I don't think this changes their long term plan. But they don't really have many guys now on this roster who can play a plus first base. I guess they could throw Pat Valleca over there in a pinch. Renato Nunez is probably your first baseman at the moment, and then they have guys in the minors at the alternate site like Adilson Herrera who could play first. But well, my thinking with this is that. I think Nunez is probably going to get the majority of the time at first base, which leaves the DH spot open. And Pedro Severino and Chance Cisco are just hitting the ball way too well right now to not have in the lineup. So my best guess is that whoever's not catching one day will probably be the DH yeah. between Severino and Cisco. Because right now, the offense has been sputtering a little bit, but those two bats have been really consistently very good. The- the the transformation, real quick, that we have seen from Chancisco in terms of oh, taking unbelievable, pitches, unbelievable. The, he has suddenly developed an incredible eye at the plate. I think yep. they both have OPSs at, at least close to a thousand at this point. And swapping them between catching and DH is probably going to be Brandon Hyde's way of making sure that both those bats stay in the lineup. We know catchers need some extra days off here and there, but if you can use a DH day as kind of a you know, back door day off. Yeah. 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 That'll work. If, but it, the question remains, well, two questions, I guess. How is Mount Castle's defense going to be in left field? And are you comfortable with Nunez's defense at first yeah. base? 
Those yeah. are the two big question marks, I think, in the lineup right and now. Those are going to be questions that Brandon Hyde is going to be asked and very soon. Um, and we're going to also talk later on in the podcast with Dan Connolly of The Athletic a little bit more about Ryan Mountcastle. But we should get to the plan segment that, frankly, we planned a week ago when this team was, what, 12 and 8? Uh, when the World Series was before still they on. Went on yeah, yeah, before they went on this five-game losing streak because that's when these questions were coming a whole lot more from our non-Orioles fans' friends about where did these guys come from? How did the Orioles put together this group of guys that m- nobody expected, at least, I mean, even with the five-game losing streak, to be just a game under five hundred. Um, at least has been an awesome start to the season. And right, I, I don't want to say that the losing streak has completely changed what we're going to talk about right, here, no. which is where these guys came from, because losing streak or not, these are still guys that came out of nowhere and are yeah. playing fantastic baseball. And of course, the Orioles have not been batting a 1,000 on these guys that are, they've picked up off waivers. There are so many guys that we don't mention, are not going to mention here, that have been picked off waiver, picked up off waivers, dropped off waivers, you know, never made a, a start, never made an appearance in the big leagues. That's just the nature of how the Orioles have been operating in terms of acquiring talent. But I think it's noteworthy because these guys have been outperforming expectations. And for the most part, the guys that we're going to talk about have really come from nowhere. Right. So, all right, let's start with uh, some of the guys that have been performing pretty well. Rio Ruiz, he's in a little bit of a slump here. Do you remember how Rio Ruiz came to the Baltimore Orioles, Brendan? Not off the top of my head, Paul. He was selected off waivers from Atlanta back in December 10th of 2018. He was the very first waiver claim by GM Michael Elias, who came from outside the organization. They had dropped somebody off waivers, picked him back up. As I think it was Ryan Meisinger was their technically his first uh, pickup off the, the the waiver wire as GM, but. Rio Ruiz, former fourth-round pick by the Astros in 2012. Of course, the first thing that was said about him when he came to the Orioles organization was this is a guy that Michael Elias is familiar with because he was a former draft pick by the Houston Astros. And he was bad with the Braves. I mean, there's no way around it. He hit 083 in his 15 plate appearances in 2018. He only hit four home runs in 53 games in 2017. And it was pretty safe to say that he was below a replacement level player. Yeah. And he, but he has been playing. The, the defense was what was touted immediately when they required him in 2018. And he has lived up to those expectations. Hasn't been perfect at third, but has been a serviceable everyday third baseman, which was literally all they were asking from him. And while he has been slumping over the past week or so, the fact that he is his power has gone up immensely. I don't think anybody expected he would ever at any point in his career have this kind of power. Um, But he has been very solid so far. So another guy that came from nowhere, Hanser Alberto. Probably the name that I get asked the most about is who is Hanser Alberto and how did he get to the Orioles? He was selected off waivers as well, Brendan. From the New York Yankees. Never played a game in New York. He was selected off waivers in January 11th of 2019. The Yankees had just selected him off waivers from Texas. Never played for the Yankees. Uh, And then, if you may remember, just a month after the Orioles took him off waivers, they put him on waivers. He was picked up by the Giants in February and then selected back off waivers by the Orioles a week later. And it is crazy to think of where the Orioles would be if they had just let him go and and the Giants had never put him back on waivers because he has been superb. Well, I am confused by all of those waivers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the the theme 
is that he really didn't show that much potential. Yeah. A lot like Rio Ruiz, when Alberto was in Texas, he never hit above 222. He hit 305 last year <laughs> and up to 320 this season. Ready for this? His first season, you know, Hanser Alberto is the lefty killer. If you are a left-handed yeah. pitcher, you might as well just not pitch to Hanser Alberto because it is going the ball is going to go somewhere that you don't want it to go if you are a pitcher. With his time with the Rangers, Hanser Alberto had 33 at-bats against left-handed pitchers. He hit 152. Where did this come from? (laughs) He goes from hitting 152 against left-handed pitching with the Rangers to now hitting, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, I think it's about 750. Um, Yeah, I mean, he hit, what, 400? What did he hit off lefties last year? He hit, what, 380-something? I think he hit above 400 or right around the 400 mark against lefties last year. I'm pretty sure this year it is a million. Yeah. Um. Don't pretty check amazing. my math on that. Pretty amazing, the the kind of transformation that he has had. And a guy that they literally let go. They put him on waivers, and then they got him back a week ago. Another guy, Asher Wojciechowski. Many may not remember that Asher Wojciechowski was actually a member of the Orioles organization before the days of Michael Elias. Oh, do tell. So he was part of the Jay Happ trade to Toronto way back in, I don't know what year that is. I didn't even write that down. That's at least five years ago. Uh, he spent time in the Astros, the Diamondbacks, the Reds, the White Sox organizations. And then in December of 2017, the Orioles signed him uh, to uh, on December 1st, then released him on July 18th, 2018. So these were the days before Michael Elias, who was hired in November of 2018. And then they get him back. A year later, on July 1st, 2019, he was purchased from the Cleveland Indians. Uh, I guess just purchased. They just took his contract. I guess Baseball you can do that. Baseball is weird. Baseball is very strange. The number of ways, I learned a lot about the number of ways you can acquire uh, an Orioles player, a player, period. He made his first start for the Orioles literally the next day after he had his contract purchased last July. A good thing he got a plane. That's, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, it was a very quick turnaround. And look, this is a guy who was a former first-round pick back in 2010, so the potential has always been there. 25 games with Cincinnati in 2017, his most significant action before the Orioles. He was 4-3 and three with a 6.5 ERA. And was that out of the bullpen or was that starting? Because I think it was a mix. Right? I think it was a mix yeah. of both. So he's never been a fantastic... He's not going to be an ace. And he hasn't been an ace for the Orioles. But what he has been is a guy who's going to come in. He's going to give you four, five, six innings. He's probably going to give up a few runs in the process. But you're not going to be out of baseball games when Asher Wojciechowski is pitching. And yeah. and that kind of consistency, while it may not be the eight innings, one hit, 12 strikeouts variety of pitching that a lot is flashy right now and you see with some aces around the league you're going to get consistent results from Asher Wojciechowski as a number four, number five pitcher in a rotation. Yeah, and our, this is the benefit of doing this live. People in our comments are talking about putting Asher Wojciechowski to the bullpen, to which I would say, who would you have start at that point? I mean, maybe uh, down the line, he would be maybe a guy that comes in after an opener, maybe a long relief guy. I just don't think the Orioles are... I think they want to give him his run uh, as a starter. I think he showed enough last year. Um, maybe down the line they will put him in the bullpen, but I think at this point, considering they are still, you know, don't have enough starters on this team, John Means has been somewhat of a question mark. Um, 
you know, Cole Stewart opted out. So I think they need him to start, and they're just going to keep throwing him out there, and I think they should. And if you were to move him to the bullpen, I think probably the most logical starters to take his place would be some of the younger guys, yeah. like a Dean Kramer, a Zach Lowther. Right. But if those guys aren't quite ready yet, then you need to keep pitching Wojciechowski. Like I said, he's not going to pitch you out of games. Even right. if he's not going seven innings, ten strikeouts, he's going to keep you in ball games. Yeah. Even the loss to the Red Sox last night only gives up three runs. Yes, he only goes three and two-thirds, but that's not an awful start. No. They, the Orioles have had worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and giving up three runs isn't putting you out of the baseball game. Right. All right, more guys to touch on. We got uh, so many guys that we got to talk about. A lot. Pedro Severino selected off waivers from the Battle of the Beltway rival Washington Nationals on March 23rd, 2019. So right before that season started, as you remember, they really at that point had, uh, you know, Jesus Sucre behind the plate. And Pedro Severino kind of stepped in and was immediately, you know, the one or two, number one or two. He didn't get the opening day start, but uh, catcher. And he has taken that and run with it. Never really got a. Uh, a chance to be a number one catcher with the Nationals, but he did get an opportunity to play, and he did not make the most of it with the Nationals. He had 187 in 105 career games with the Nationals. Yeah, this is a case where we've talked about a guy like Alberto that really didn't get much run in the major leagues. Severino had his chances to prove himself in Washington, and he showed flashes. He hit yeah. 321 in 16 games in 2016, but then in 2018, he was just... Uh, awful. Yeah. There's really no other way to put it. 70 games, a 168 average, two home runs, and 47 strikeouts. That's not what I would call a, a no. good season. Uh, and now, just by the way, he's up to 319 with five home runs and 19 RBIs and in 12 games. Hopefully it lasts. Uh, Anthony Santander, taken by the Orioles in the 2016 Rule 5 draft. Another pre-Mike Elias pickup. Uh, he was the final pick of the MLB phase of the Rule 5 draft in 2016, the number 18 overall pick. Back when it looks like a lot of people took a lot of players in the 2016 Rule 5 draft. does not feel like that many guys are taken in today's uh, Rule 5 draft. Uh, but fun fact, he was the second pick by the Orioles in that Rule 5 draft. They took Yuri Tavares, and I'm probably butchering that, from Boston with the number 12 pick, and he was returned to the Red Sox. So this guy was not even the first Orioles Rule 5 draft pick. Uh, it is interesting to question why, considering he was a 21-year-old uh, and had shown a lot of promise. He had just never played above a high A level. And when you're taking a Rule 5 draft pick, you have to throw him on your big league roster and pretty much give him playing time. And for the 2016 Orioles, or 2017 Orioles, I guess at that point, they thought that they were competing. But they took a risk. They... Dan Duquette loved his Rule 5 draft picks. They took a risk in, in taking Santander. It took a while for it to pay off, but it has paid off huge. Massively. And my question was a similar question to what you had, which was, if you're Cleveland, why are you not protecting, protecting this him. guy? Yeah. So I, here's a funny story. I, I go up and I look up the uh, Indians roster from 2015 to see the outfielders that they had. On, uh, on the good old baseball almanac, I find that they had Michael Bourne, Michael hey. Brantley, hey, Ryan Rayburn, and Abraham Almonte. Not to say that those guys weren't good outfielders. They were solid. And Santander probably would not have had a shot at the majors that year. But the funny part of that is, 
is that as I'm scrolling on Baseball Almanac, they have a video tab up that is top five plays of the night. And I am looking at the Indians roster from 2015. I kid you not. And there's an Anthony Santander highlight from last night of him making the leaping catch at the wall. And that is irony at its finest. It is funny, though, because he, and, you know, in fairness to Cleveland, it did take him a while to get his feet under him. We always saw the potential. He was always such a big, strong, athletic, fast guy. And we always saw the potential since he made his big league debut in 2017, but he just had never put it all together until this season. And now we're seeing the kind of potential that Dan Duquette saw him in, crazy enough. I honestly think, I don't think anybody could have seen this potential. I mean, the dude is playing literally at an MVP level right now. We'll see how long. I mean, it is still 20-some games into the season. Right, but individual statistics, team success aside... He's playing like an MVP. He is. Another guy who's been playing very well, Renato Nunez, selected off waivers from the Texas Rangers on May 13th, 2018. Texas gave him just 13 games. They had just taken him off waivers from Oakland before placing him on waivers after 13 games. He lasted a month, just about, with the Rangers organization. Orioles scooped him right up on May 13th, 2018. Just really didn't show the potential with... Oakland or Texas uh, never hit above 200 and we know Renato Nunez is not going to give you a ton of value defensively yeah we're still seeing that now but with the Orioles he's providing a big boost offensively yeah and if he wasn't doing that with the two teams that he was on previously then he's not really providing you with a lot of value but he's got his bat around and the Orioles have found the value with Nunez at the DH spot and now at first base yeah I mean he was one of the bright spots in the last second half of that 2018 season, was they viewed him at that time as a third baseman. So he was at, at third base. Um, but that was the you know the year that the Orioles had to sell everybody. And he was actually kind of a bright spot the second half of that year. They said he's not a third baseman. He's a DH. Stuck him there in 2019. Hit over 30 homers. Dwight Smith Jr., who has struggled as of late. We talked about him earlier. How did the Orioles get him? He was traded by Toronto for international bonus slot money, former first-round pick from 2011. And this one's an interesting case because he actually showed flashes of playing a bit better in Toronto than he's played in Baltimore thus far. He hit 293 in his two seasons with the Blue Jays. Granted, it was only uh, 47 games, that sample size came. So now that he's got a larger sample size, hasn't swung the bat quite as well with Baltimore, and we've seen his struggles defensively, but the Blue Jays just had a crowded outfield. They have a very crowded farm system with a lot of guys that are coming up. They've got Randall Grichik, Teoscar Hernandez, uh, Billy McKinney, Kevin Biggio has bounced around from second base to the outfield, and they've got more guys coming up. So for the Blue Jays, it was really just a case of Dwight Smith Jr. just wasn't going to fit anywhere, and we're kind of seeing that with the Orioles right now as they call up more prospects There's just guys who are swinging the bat a little bit better. But nonetheless, Dwight Smith Jr. was still a good pickup for the Orioles for what they got him for and still added enough production to certainly make this trade worth it. Let's get into the pitchers. Four guys here that I brought up, and there are probably others that are outperforming expectations that I have not brought up. But Thomas Eshelman was traded to the Orioles from the Phillies for international bonus slot money. Uh, Former second-round pick by Houston, so another guy who has Mike Elias ties back in 2015. And he was part of the Ken Giles to the Astros trade, the trade that sent former first overall pick Mark Appel to the Phillies. 
How are you feeling about that trade? That Paul? is a. I mean that that trade had a bunch of moving moving pieces. I think Appel was mostly a throw in in that yeah. deal because uh, they view so he went from the Orioles or from from the Astros to the Phillies to the O's, Thomas Esherman, and he was just kind of a an extraneous piece in that Ken Giles deal. Well, he was because Thomas Eshelman was bad in the minor leagues. You look at his 2018 statistics in AAA, he was 2 and 13, 2 and 13 with a 5.84 ERA. Now, if you're 2 and 13 with a 5.84 ERA in AAA, you're probably not going to have a ton of success. And Wins and losses don't matter for a pitcher. Come on. That, that's fair, but still the the ERA close to six is not fantastic. Not good. So you're probably not going to be a piece that a team is going to look at and say, this guy who went 2-13 with a 5.84 ERA, we've got to hold on to this guy. Yeah. But, again, he had more potential than that, and he's he's shown to be, again, not a guy who is fantastic at the major league level, but a good, consistent pitcher. Next up, Cole Sulser, current closer, if you will, for the Baltimore Orioles. He was part of the three-team trade that sent Carlos Santana back to the Indians. These trades are confusing. And Edwin Encarnacion was part of that trade. That was back in December 2018. Cole Sulser was selected off waivers by the O's in October of 2019. He had made his big league debut, and had not given up a run in, I think, seven appearances with the Rays last year. Thought that he was going to get another opportunity to be with them. They put him on waivers. O said thank you very much to Cole Sulser. He has been serviceable at least through the first month of the season. He was one of those guys in the trades as well where it's going to be my point for the next few that we talk about. If you are a bullpen arm in the minors and you are good but not great, you are a piece that can probably be in a trade as, oh, we'll throw in this bullpen arm that has a chance to be a serviceable major leaguer, but it's not somebody that is so highly touted in the system that you have to hold on to him. So you kind of become expendable at that point because you're just, you're kind of a tweener. Right. You're one of those that is not really highly touted. And if you can be a serviceable major leaguer, then you still offer value to a team. And that's why... Cole Sulcer became part of a trade, but he was never fantastic in the minors. He was good with his stint with the Rays, like you said, but it's just one of those guys. He's a tweener. Yeah, and Travis Lakins, I remember when the Orioles picked him up off waivers from the Chicago Cubs back in late January of 2020. I remember looking at his stats being saying, this guy's pretty good. He had not pitched for the Cubs, didn't never played for them, but was with Boston and was picked up by the Cubs off waivers and then picked up by the Orioles. And he had a sub-4 ERA, you know, not in too many games, but uh, worth a shot for the Orioles in, in Travis Lakins. Again, up and down. We'll see what he has to show out of the bullpen, but they have needed him, and uh, he has been serviceable, at least eating up some innings. It, it's kind of the same case. You look at his stats, yeah. just like he said, yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Worth and, a shot. And this guy, Sean Armstrong, has been better. I think he has been one of the better arms in this bullpen, uh, has, you know, kind of flourished so far in 2020. Uh, Selected off waivers from the Mariners back on April 28th, 2019. He would have been originally drafted by the Astros, Mike Elias Ty, out of high school, uh, but then was taken by Cleveland Indians after that. 
Yeah, 4.38 ERA with Cleveland in 21 games in 2017. Went to Seattle, and the dude just needed a change of scenery after that. Appeared in just four games and had an ERA of nearly 15 in those four games. Um, I'm not a math wizard, but an ERA of nearly 15 is not really what you want out of a reliever. So Sean Armstrong got a change of scenery here in Baltimore and is now pitching pretty well. He's been a solid arm out of the bullpen and a much more solid arm than probably the Seattle Mariners thought that they were getting. Nine games so far. He's got a 1-6-4 ERA in his age 29 season. So all, all of these guys, at the very least, whether they stick with this team or in the big leagues long term, have outperformed expectations and have done good on the opportunities that they have been given. All right, that just about does it for our portion of this. But I did speak to Dan Connolly of The Athletic, a little bit more about Ryan Mountcastle, and also about the news that Cal Ripken Jr. uh, is fully recovered and had been diagnosed with prostate cancer several months ago, news that he had just revealed to reporters yesterday. So you're going to want to catch my conversation with Dan Connolly. We're now joined on the Mass and All Access podcast by Dan Connolly of The Athletic. Dan, thanks so much for hopping on here. You have an amazing setup that I envy every single time I see you on a Zoom call with the Orioles with the Simpsons poster over your shoulder. How did you get that poster? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. So I was in college in 89 and we were in a uh, at a newspaper convention. I think it was New Orleans, Louisiana, but we were uh, there and Fox, which was a brand new uh, network at the time, was trying to promote some of its shows and they had a show coming up at Christmas time. Uh, that was by the guy who did the Life is Hell stuff, um, a guy named Matt Groening. And he was there to promote this show, this new show, this Christmas show, which had been part of the Tracy Ullman show. I didn't know anything about it, but we sat and started talking to him. I knew his cartoon that he had, had drawn. So my buddy and I sat there. We talked to him for about 15, 20 minutes. No one else was around him. And he signed privately the Yo Dan <laughs> and the Simpsons. And he dated it, which is November 17th, 1989. Before the Simpsons actually were on the air, as, as you know, became an iconic and one of the longest-running shows of all time, and so that's my that's one of my big things. And I have Springsteen's a Springsteen drum. So those are the two things we got: Matt Groening on one and Springsteen on the other. That is so cool. And for those who are not watching on the on the Mass and All Access Facebook page or watching on YouTube, and just listening to this podcast, it is very cool. It's a huge poster. You got all the Simpsons characters and a character from Life Is Hell in that poster, right? Right. right. And it says your pal Matt Groening. Now we weren't exactly buddies, but I'm going to tell people we were. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm good for that. For yeah. that for that half an hour we were hanging out, we were definitely friends. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for hopping on here. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about Ryan Mountcastle in just a bit, but let's start with the news that came out yesterday. You were on the Zoom call with Cal Ripken Jr. and the news that he revealed, which is that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He underwent surgery and he is fully recovered at this point. How did this Zoom call come about, and and how did he reveal this news to you? What was that experience like yesterday? Yeah, it was kind of a strange experience. It was uh, a Zoom call to kind of get us prepared for the September 6, 2000, uh, the the 25th anniversary of the 2131 game on September 6th. And so that's why we were there. There's maybe four or five writers, I think five writers total. And, you know, we're, we're asking him questions. We're maybe the second or third question in, and he talks about having a tough year. And he said it was been a, been a tough year for me personally as well. In February, you know, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and of course, none of us knew. Um, kind of blew all of our minds. Um, 
and then really we kind of pushed 2131. It's very hard to push 2131 away because it's obviously one of the most iconic moments in baseball and Orioles history, but this obviously did it. And so for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, we ended up talking a lot about Cal's recovery and, and Cal's, you know, it was interesting to me. And I wrote about in the athletic today. It was, it's interesting because he's a pretty private guy for someone who's in the middle of the limelight all the time throughout his entire career. He is a fairly private guy. So he had to you know, decide to, to tell us. I mean, honestly, we probably never would have known. And if we w- would have known, we might not have even written it at that point because it becomes, you know, old news or whatever. But he decided to share it because he feels like now that, you know, he got it, it was it was really a miracle, he would call it. I mean, basically, his PSA levels were just a little bit up, Paul. I mean, it wasn't there was nothing really alarming. But his doctor said, well, why don't you go to your urologist, just see it at your age. He turned 60 on Monday. And at your age, why don't you just, you know, just kind of get it checked out. So he did. And um, he had some tests there. And then they're like, OK, let's let's get a biopsy just in case. They got the biopsy. That's where they found the cancer. So they found it early. It was, you know, just local, just to the prostate. They removed the prostate. And he's playing golf again. He's riding bikes again. He's basically, you know, the Iron Man again. But, I mean, it, it makes a, a bigger deal, I think, because – of who he is because his entire reputation was that, you know, he was such a tough guy and he could handle so many things. And here he has this life threatening situation. So I talked to several of his friends. I talked to uh, Brady Anderson and Mike Bordick, his brother, Billy Ripken. And I even talked to Joe Torrey uh, because Torrey went through this very public thing in 1999 where he ended up coming back and managing a world series champion um, after having prostate surgery. So Joe has kind of become baseball's face of the prostate, you know, cancer, movement and, and screening and such. And so, um, you know, Cal's probably going to be at least a part of that now. Yeah, it is an amazing story that this all came out now. And, and as you said, that, you know, this would not even be a story if he didn't make it a story and if he didn't right. come forth with this kind of information. But uh, I know I speak for Orioles fans where I say we are just thrilled that he is doing okay. He is fully recovered at this point and um, that he is taking his platform to uh, a new level in terms of using his platform to speak about this and to bring awareness to this, which is obviously a devastating uh, cancer that you know affects men and is is uh, especially impactful when it comes from somebody of his stature. So um, great news, at least that he is is doing better and is fully recovered and is back to Iron Man, as you said. So. Wanted to touch on that as well, but let's get into the 2020 Orioles here. Let's talk about Ryan Mountcastle and the news that he is going to join the team today. Why do you think the news comes today? Why do you think his call-up happens now um, as opposed to maybe a week or so ago when Orioles fans were still clamoring for it at at this point? And, And why do you think they made the decision to pull the trigger today? Well, I think the Orioles are going to say that he's ready. They've liked what they've seen in the overflow camp. And that this is the time for it. I'm going to say that's probably a large part of it. I'm also going to do a wink, wink here at you um, because right now, roughly at this time, we don't know an exact date, but roughly at around this time, we were saying Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're clear through Super 2 status. That won't be actually determined for arbitration for two more. Well, until the end of this, uh, you know, this winter, that number will be determined. And then those players won't actually get Super 2 status for two more years. But you know, basically what Super 2 status does for, for your listeners that don't know is it gives them an extra year of arbitration. And what that really means, you know, normally they get three years of arbitration and three years of being under full team control. The first three years are team control, next three for arbitration. 
You get a fourth year. That means the raises start earlier. And so, you know, an example with Matt Weiders, the rules decided not to do that in 2009. They, they held him back till May 29th, um, which was basically around Memorial Day. And he did not have get Super 2 status. The next year, when he finally was ready for arbitration, he went from 500000 to $5.5 million. You make that jump early, your sophomore year or your, your second year, then you can keep really piling up the money from there. So I, I'm sure that was part of it. Um, the Orioles say it's all about development, and we'll, we'll go with them on that. Um, but I think, you know, you're seeing these last couple of days, the Atlanta Braves have done it. The St. Louis Cardinals have done it. A lot of teams are bringing up their top prospects. Uh, and so I don't think it's just a coincidence. This is like roughly what would be Memorial Day for this season. And the Orioles now are just still a game under 500. They are on a five-game losing streak. But in this 2020 season, teams, 16 teams make the postseason. So in theory, the Orioles are probably not going to be out of it for at least a little while. Do you think there's any extra pressure on Ryan Mountcastle coming up at this time, especially the way the offense has been struggling? Is there pressure on Mountcastle to perform at least uh, at the plate, let alone in the field? Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things that might have also kind of accelerated him being promoted is that I I think the, the, the foot's off the gas a little bit in the Orioles as a playoff team. And I think, you know, the one thing the Orioles don't want is for Ryan Mountcastle to be viewed as a savior, to be, okay, you know, we're really struggling or we're right in the middle of it. He's going to put us over the top. Um, I think they want to ease him in. And now they're in a five-game losing streak. Maybe you can say, well, he can help turn that around. But also you can look at the the flip side and say, you know, the playoff pressure is not as as strong right now. So now we can put him on there and we can ease him in a little bit. Um, you know, the guy is a good prospect and he can hit. There are holes in his game. We know about defensive, you know, trying to find a position for him. We also know that he, he strikes out a lot and doesn't walk much. Um, that could work at AAA. That may not work in the majors. So I think people are clamoring for him because no one else is ready. And because, you know, he, he was the, the International League uh, MVP last year. So I think that the people, you know, do see him register as a prospect. But this guy barely made or didn't make the top 100 prospects, in, you know, from several different publications, Paul. So, you know, he, I, I wouldn't certainly call him a fringe prospect, but he's not he's certainly not a savior. And he's a guy who I think can be a really nice additional supplemental piece. And with this offense, the Orioles probably feel like they have enough firepower that adding him to it doesn't necessarily shine the light you know, too brightly on him. Well, you mentioned the Orioles kind of cooling off in terms of the, the national perspective, and people are cooling off on the Orioles being a playoff team in 2020 this year. And, I, I mean, I, I think we all kind of figured it was bound to happen at some point. It was a great first month of the season, uh, but they did come back to earth within the past week or so. Do you think still, you know, assuming they go on and to not make the playoffs and, you know, they, they, their record ends up being somewhat closer to, to some of the prediction models, do you think there's still some positives to take out of the hot start that they had going 12-9 and nine through the first three or so weeks of the season? Could they still glean some positives from that start? Absolutely, because I, I think two of the things that we look at is, one, their offense is legit. I mean, I know that they've been slowed recently. But I think the guys that are that performed for those first few weeks, I think you look at it and say, okay, these guys can play. These guys can hit. Uh, Santander, obviously. Um, Alberto, obviously. Rio Ruiz is, you know, is coming into his own more. Nunez is, is showing that he's not a, you know, he's, it wasn't just a one-year wonder necessarily. Um, Severino's hit. Cisco looks better with the bat. 
I think you look at that and say, okay, there is a nucleus of offense here, whether it's the nucleus that you're going to see in 2023 or 2024, or if those are our, our trade pieces. But these guys offensively are legitimate offensive players. I think you also look at it and say the bullpen, there are some arms there. Uh, you know, the starters don't go deep. Those arms are going to get, you know, abused. And then we'll see, well, you know, they, they won't be as effective. That is a huge key for a playoff team. And, you know, we're going to see that now. And I think that's what we're seeing when, when the starters, you know, go three and two thirds or four innings or whatever it might be. They're not going six and seven regularly. Too much pressures on that bullpen, even with a couple extra guys. But I think if you look at it, there are some guys in that bullpen that did take a step forward. Castro's looked pretty good. Scott has obviously looked pretty good, except for last night. So I think that, you know, that's positives. And the other the other thing that we should at least put our sights on is they've done well against really good pitching. Like if you look at the studs that they've had to face, whether it was Cole, whether it was Strasburg, whether it was uh, Scherzer, um, you know, these those are pretty dang good pitchers. And they held their own against them. And I think that's encouraging going forward. Absolutely. It, not to put you on the spot too much, but you talked about some of the bullpen pieces. You mentioned Tanner Scott, who struggled last night, but those were the first earned runs he was charged with all season. Michael Givens has had some you know, down points at, at, through the first month of the season, but he has shown the ability to be kind of like the ace reliever that he was expected to be. Are those two guys, or is there anybody else that deserves to be in that conversation that you think could be a long-term fixture of this bullpen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, if I had to pinpoint the long-term fixture of this bullpen, he hasn't pitched for the Orioles this year, and that's Hunter Harvey. Yeah. That's the guy that I look at as, you know, the long-time fixture. That said, Miguel Castro is actually younger than Hunter Harvey, and, you know, Castro's got a big arm. And if they can harness Miguel Castro – you know, that he could be, you know, but the thing is, his, his arbitration's already kicked in because he's been in the majors so long because he came up when he was 20. So, I mean, I think that, that Castro and Scott and Harvey are guys that you can think maybe in the future. Uh, but, you know, it, it all depends. A lot of it's contractual um, and a lot of it's being able to be consistent. And I think that's the most difficult thing. But when I was looking at, you know, in five years from now, who on this current team is going to be on that team? Uh, you know, I think you can point to the bullpen a little bit because it seems like sometimes those bullpen guys do you look up and they've been with the Orioles for four years or five years. So I think that that's a possibility. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how these guys progress and which numbers end up holding true and, and which guys continue to perform to this level and which ones kind of fall off. And then Michael Elias will have some decisions to make in terms of the long-term future. So, Dan, thanks so much for hopping on here, sharing your thoughts, sharing your Simpsons poster and, uh, <laughs> and joining us here on Mass and All Access Podcast. You got it, Paul. Thank you.